Welcome to today's episode on Life in the Front Office. I'm your host, Jake Hirschman, here with my co-host and Andy Dolich and our guest in NAMI, who's the president of Launch Vegas. Really excited to talk to NAMI about, you know, his career path, obviously his journey in the world of casinos, entertainment, Vegas, uh, sports, gambling. We'll get into a number of things and ultimately where it's going as well. So Nami, welcome to the podcast. Really excited for episode 225. Andy, this is incredible. Episode 225. I mean, I'm sitting here thinking like, wow, we've had a lot of guests on and we've talked about a lot of topics. But Nami's about to to just rock the podcast world in the terms of, in 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 the world of you know gambling and and casinos and everything entertainment. So uh, let's. I, I have two. Much. I have two quick ones for you. So number one, I love names and I love creativity. Um, Launch Vegas. When Jake told me I hadn't heard about it, I love it. How did it come about? Well, um, it was very interesting. I, I came up with it in a, over a, a July 4th weekend, one, one holiday weekend in uh, 2017. Um, you know, I had done 20 years in casinos and sports and media, and I was a little bit burned out. And I just launched the Golden Knights brand to the world. And uh, we just had our very successful draft uh, that was watched by 2 million people and attended by 12,000 people in Las Vegas. And I was just burned out. Um, and I said, you know what, I, I can, I want to start my own firm and um, I want to work with brand, young brands and, and uh, entrepreneurs that I can help launch their brands, just like I did for the Golden Knights and, and mega resorts in the casino business for 15 years. Um, and, uh, you know, it just came to me, Las Vegas, launch Vegas is a play on Las Vegas. And, and I think everyone kind of in one word, you can kind of get what the company's trying to do. And so I, uh, I filed a you know, registration with the Secretary of State of Nevada and Launch Vegas LLC was born in over July 4th weekend. So that, that's great, which is a perfect segue to the Las Vegas Golden Knights. Having been involved in sports for a few years um, and been at a number of different sporting events in Las Vegas, which has now sort of become the headquarters of collegiate basketball postseason tournaments. Nobody would have believed that. But if you went to a lot of smart people six or seven years ago and said, all right, take the big four sports and you got to place a bet in Las Vegas legally on which sport would, of the four would be the first in Vegas to basically be beyond a success I'm just thinking the NHL would have been far down the list. And when you look at their short history and the unbelievable success in bonding with the community, in how you handled the horrific tragedy and how that became part of the DNA of, of the Vegas Knights fan base and the community, can you just give our listeners a bit of history on how it became this great story in hockey, which isn't exactly something that everybody in Vegas is lacing up their skates uh, when they get home from school. Yeah, it's true. It was true back then. And 
Um, we have a lot of learn to skate programs now. We have more sheets of ice now. So it is becoming a recreational sport for kids and, and, and adults as well. But back then when I was working with the Knights in 16 and 17, you couldn't even buy street hockey gear at the local sporting goods store. Um, it was it was that much of a barren, uh, you know, wasteland for for a sport like hockey, which was traditionally a cold weather sport. But it was very interesting, Andy. I, I entered the casino business in 2004, uh, fresh out of business school. You know, at the time, it was a brick and mortar casino landscape uh, in really just Atlantic City, uh, Nevada, and a few smatterings of Indian casinos. And now we're close to a thousand casinos, commercial and Native American across the US. And now it's a $200 billion industry globally, uh, including China um, and Singapore, where you have even more demand for casino gaming among uh, Asian populations. So it's come full circle. And when I started, you, I was doing sports deals. I was doing talent headliner deals um, and trying to, I was trying to um, align sports and entertainment and casinos, but all the collective bargaining agreements in the major sports prohibited athletes from walking through casinos, from playing, you know, affiliating their personal brands with casinos and to see how far it's come in 17 when the Golden Knights dropped the puck and then in 18 when they overturned the, the federal ban on sports betting, um, it, it is in, in warp speed, operation warp speed really, to get operators of casinos, sports brands, leagues, and sports betting operations to all align. It's become a new sponsorship category. It's become, you know, you now have a casino putting their name on the what we used to know as the Fox regional sports network. So it's amazing as somebody who always got his wrist slapped by legal saying, you can't do, you can't have our bookmaker, you know, go on ESPN to now see it being rebranded, you know, sports betting networks. It's just amazing how fast all that has taken shape. And I do give a lot of credit to the fact that the golden Knights, has have had three successful seasons, but also three scandal-free seasons when it comes to sports betting. Nami, when you when oh, you Jake, as you know, I, and Nami, I'm a serial interrupter, so I'll just interrupt uh, initially and then twelve more times, and we'll get into the details of the incredible rapidity of legalized gaming and sports, but. As you were talking, I was thinking back to 2000 and the Memphis Grizzlies that I was running the business side, and you probably know, which very few people do, the name Tunica, Mississippi, a very large gaming area, 35 minutes outside of Memphis. And I went, holy mackerel, we don't have a lot of business in Memphis, but there were 14 casinos at that time, and we generated other than FedEx, they were our largest sponsor because none of them had sports books at that time. So we could take spa, golf, entertainment. I went to the Tennessee State Legislature in 2001 and said, we want to put a mini casino in FedEx Forum. And I went, holy cow, we're going to be the first one. We'll have slot machines and stuff like that. It'll be the coolest. And we were turned down. And to this day, that left 
sort of a hole in my soul. Um, but now, you know, we see what Monumental Sports is doing and others, and it's there. So I know that I wasn't a total blockhead looking at that, you know, 19 or 20 years ago. You're actually ahead of your time. Um, I think the where where I fall on it on the morality scale is that, you know, it, it's a form of entertainment gambling. We have a lot of problem gaming programs to to recognize when people are you know, having too much risk um, in that endeavor. And it, it's better that it is, it is legal and regulated than it is to have people go offshore. And, and that's really where I fall on it. And, and you're exactly right. When I did sponsorship deals back in the early 2000s with the major casinos, it was, we always had to advertise the resort elements of our brand and not the casino elements, even with the NHL. They said, you know, you can advertise Caesars Resort, but you can't advertise Caesars Sportsbook. Of course, that changed with, with PASPA a year later. But initially, we went to the NHL and said, look, you know, casinos are our biggest bread and butter industry in Nevada. If we can't have any casino sponsors, then as a team, that's really going to hurt our, our ability to, to drive sponsorship revenue. So it's like, like the oil industry in Oklahoma City with the Thunder, um, you know, casinos are the lifeblood of Nevada, and our Fortune 1000 firms are primarily gaming companies. Let's let's talk about the casino side of things from a brand perspective a little bit, Nami, because as you think about the property, as Andy was mentioning, his efforts to try and bring in a sports book into a venue, and just kind of the creativity that surrounds this category, right? There are some that are going to be very hesitant, but some also that see this runway to just absolutely go off, you know, completely outside the box and do something really, really unique and creative that then everyone else, you know, seems to follow. But there's a lot of players, right? You know, you have BetMGM, you have PointsBet, you have FanDuel and DraftKings on the fantasy, you know, daily fantasy. Side. There's so many players. How do you, as a brand, try and separate yourself within that part of the industry? And then as a property, how do you pick? Yeah, it's, it's, um, there's a lot of players right now. I think the industry is ripe for even more consolidation. Um, and, you know, sports betting is a low margin business. And I don't think everyone can survive because the, the cost of customer acquisition is so high. Um, you know, if you look at New Jersey, where 80% of the handle is mobile, um, you know, people are betting from their couch. They're opening accounts from their couch. They never have to step foot in a retail casino or sports book and they can place bets. So the cost of customer acquisition is not unlike a, an online retailer trying to acquire a new customer. So they're giving you, you know, 500 in free play in matching bets. Um, they're giving you a thousand dollars sign up bonus, things of that nature. And, 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 you know, one in two people will actually just you burn through that free play and just never bet again. Um, so it's, it's, you know, I think the early years have been about user acquisition and DraftKings and FanDuel and everyone's talking about how many users they've acquired. Uh, the, the, the ensuing years are going to be about profitability. Uh, but right now everybody's, you know, frothing at the mouth because you have the arenas want the, they want the sponsorship revenue. The broadcasters want to increase fan engagement by having betting content that's interesting to fans. The leagues now want the same thing. 
um, you know, continued fan engagement when their team is 0-15 and it's week 16 of the NFL, if there's nothing to play for, guess what? You know, fans will play for if their money's on the line. And then and they'll watch it when their money's on the line. So it, it definitely increased fan engagement. So, um, but I do think there's been a bit of a, uh, it, it's like musical chairs. Everybody's partnering up. And they're thinking less about luxury versus mid-end brands, low-end brands. They're just thinking about volume right now. Well, if you're, if, if, Andy, if you're, if you're oh. out, you, well, you know records as, as well as anyone. If you're 0-15, there's a big bet that next week of whether you're going 1-15 or 0-16. I'd like to think that would be pretty enticing to watch. Well, not a Jake was making fun of me because early in my career, my first job, I was an intern with the nine and 73 Philadelphia 76ers, nine and 73, a record which will never be broken in the NHL. Uh, in the um, so your career is the perfect confluence of sports and entertainment and you know, I, whether you call it sportainment or whatever, it's immersive entertainment and Vegas is the ultimate Mount Everest of that mix. Um, we've talked in the past, but you're the expert. So the number that I read that was bet on the last Super Bowl was about $5 billion just on that game alone. And even with legalized betting in how many states now have it, 22, 23, and they're adding every day. Tell us a bit how, you know, people look at $5 billion. Holy man. So what does the league get? What does the Players Association get? What does the MVP get? What does the broadcast network get? What does the, the state get? What do the feds get? And maybe it's just me, but it's still going to be a while until that money that's bet basically comes to all the constituencies. And I know we could, we'll have a second time with you because there's so many areas to talk about, but for like betting for dummies, how is this working with vast amounts that are being bet today and ultimately in the future outside of casinos, advertising, entertainment, spa, etc. Where do we see the money going in some sort of funnel to all those constituencies? Well, you know, I got to give credit to the American Gaming Association. They've done a nice job of, you know, providing this, these research and these infographics to the public because, you know, we didn't know the reception that the nation was going to have when they overturned PASPA. So, you know, right now it's a messy rollout. It's state by state. All the tax rates are different. Uh, the, the regulation is different. Some have retail only. Some have retail plus mobile betting. Some have, you know, it, it's, a, it's a hodgepodge, unfortunately. But that's, you know, a state like Iowa has a very friendly tax rate. Uh, it's, you know, single digit tax rate versus a state like Pennsylvania, which I think is upwards of uh, 30%. And so uh, the way you break down a dollar, generally, you know, the casino, the bed, the books can hold five to 20%, depending on whether you do a lot of parlays um, or, you know, you cater to a certain type of, uh, you know, more straight bets. But, um, you know, generally, uh, 
casinos or the sports book operator is going to bear all the risk. Um, you know, they're going to pay tax on gross gaming revenue. Um, and if there's profitability, you know, they may pay some rent to somebody who, like a racetrack or somebody who owns that. And that rent can be in the form of a fixed rent or a revenue share. Um, and then basically other, uh, it's a consumer application, like, but, but we're, we're kind of regulated like banks, like financial institutions. So everything has to be compliant. There has to be records and systems, um, you know, but it's better that that is out in the spotlight than under, you know, behind the shadows where it has traditionally been. Um, you know, if you were in Texas and you wanted to bet on the Super Bowl, you couldn't do it. You'd have to fly to Nevada uh, or you'd have to basically bet offshore. So, um, you know, I like where the industry is going. There is going to be a cottage industry of experts and, and people with bodies and knowledge to help brands and operators and entrepreneurs make better decisions. And the products that are going to evolve for consumers are going to be so much better. Like right now, most of the bet is pre-game, but you're going to see a heck of a lot more betting during the game. Um, and so the product innovation is going to be fantastic. But I mean, to answer your question, the, the, govern, the governments and the states are getting that tax revenue now and they're aggregating the monthly gaming volume and they are seeing, you know, millions in tax revenue and whether, whether, the forecasts, whether it meets the forecasts and the expectations of the people who voted on those state referendums, that remains to be seen. A lot of those forecasts are always pretty rosy, um, but but it is happening in real time. And, and New Jersey is a great example of a, of a of a really comprehensive rollout and and letting the market, you know, dictate where that demand is. Nami, as you think about a lot of these partnerships, and we had. You know, for, for context, we had Dan Hawley on from the Broncos talking a little bit about their BetMGM, you know, deal at, at the NFL level to be the first. You know, you think about launching brands and launching partnerships. This is something that has been done across the board, across many, many, many categories, but in the gaming world hasn't been done yet, right, until as of recent. And so as you think about your time in, in Vegas on the team side, you know, launching that brand and then many of the other brands you've worked with, what are kind of some of the key components to launching these partnerships uh, to make them successful ultimately in the long run? Well, as a marketer, um, you know, a casino in Vegas may only touch a customer every 12 to 18 months, um, especially someone who comes from out of state. Uh, locals casinos are different. They see them more frequently, but um, you know, we love the fact that sports teams have a share of voice with their fan base and their audience that's much higher than, you know, television, linear television or, you know, a retail brand. So, you know, a, a team is able to talk to their customer across so many different media, whether it's, you know, TV during the broadcast, whether it's email marketing, whether it's uh, town halls with fans, whether it's rallies. You're just able to do, as a casino, you're able to get your brand woven into a sports team's fan base. And, you know, the research from IEG shows that, you know, people are, you know, let's say an insurance company that's a sponsor of NASCAR. If you're a fan of NASCAR, you're 73% more likely to do business with a, with a brand that affiliates with your affinity, your hobby, your passion 
then you are a brand that's not affiliated. So from a casino perspective, you know, we have 150,000 hotel rooms in Vegas and, and most of the visitations done on a four mile stretch of road called Las Vegas Boulevard. And so, so casinos try to differentiate from one another and it's hyper competitive. So to be the official casino resort partner of your favorite team is a really compelling proposition. I remember I did a deal with the Dallas Mavericks and when I was with Wynn and Wynn was the official destination resort partner of the Mavericks for a short time, but they also had Windstar Casino, which was a different category altogether. It was sort of the favorite, the official drive-in resort partner because people would drive there. So they took casino as a category and they split it into two subcategories and they were able to even drive more revenue, you know, as a sports organization. So I really love the convergence of all this because at the end of the day, I don't think casinos are the, the big bad boogeyman. Um, and I'm glad that they're allowed to play in this space now um, because it is a regulated industry. You talked about, you know, the future and I know you're doing some work with Madison Square Garden on sphere and uh, not everybody necessarily knows about that again another example of the world of today reaching the world of tomorrow can you explain a little bit about what sphere is uh is trying to accomplish yeah i mean i i uh i helped them under contract for more than a year um and then the covid crisis you know pushed the project back till 2023 but um it's an amazing example of the big risk taking that takes place in las vegas i mean it was one thing to build a billion dollar resort hotel with, with hotel rooms and a casino but it's another thing to build a billion dollar arena that doesn't have a sports team as an anchor um and so sphere is is a uh you know 180,000 square feet give or take of of a spherical uh, you know, indoor experience that's going to have all the latest, greatest immersive technology to really elevate the viewing experience, sound, uh, visuals, um, you know, presentation, everything. And it's, and it's going to be attached to the Venetian, which is the best convention hotel in Las Vegas. And so, you know, before COVID, of course, the way you drew it up was, We'd have conventions and you'd have like Samsung rolling out a new product doing during a keynote for a consumer electronics show inside a sphere. You would have the outside um, entirely programmable. It could be a burning sun. It could be a tennis ball. It could be a Microsoft logo, the outside of sphere. Um, it has so much capability. Um, and then you'd also weave in headliners and custom shows that can only be done in sphere. So they, we were thinking about it at the time as Sphere is like a medium. It's it's like you give a software, a developer of software, you give them a software development kit. We would give creators a software development kit for Sphere and they would build a purpose-built show just for Sphere and that could only take place in in Sphere. It could, you couldn't take that road show to XYZ Arena. And so... In my experience, what works in Vegas and what really has a competitive advantage 
is nationally known brands, but in only in Vegas experience. So, so the shows that don't have a Broadway or an LA or a Miami outpost, but it only in Vegas experience from a nationally or internationally known brand. And with MSG unveiling a first to market concept like Sphere, that has a potential to succeed in Las Vegas. No, I mean, as you think about all of what's going to become post COVID as Andy likes to call it the new different, there's a lot of, there's a lot of unknown, right? And as you think about entertainment, you think about Vegas, there's a lot that can change and probably will change and yeah. will evolve, right? It's not for better or for worse. It's just an evolution um, from a change perspective. What does entertainment look like in this new different? And how is Vegas of all places where now you've got the Las Vegas Raiders, you've got the Golden Knights, you've got all sorts of different uh, conference tournaments as, as Andy mentioned, you know, NBA Summer League, et cetera. Uh, what does all that look like in terms of, I mean, are we gonna see more teams come to Vegas? Uh, you're, you know, you already have UNLV, so you've got the college component. I mean, what else can you fit there? Well, it's gonna be really interesting and, and so, you know, Las Vegas has always been, you know, a supply driven market. And, and every year that we've raised supply of hotel rooms or convention space or arenas, we've always had a subsequent rise in occupancy. So we've never opened like 3000 rooms and then all of a sudden fewer people visited. We've always opened things and then more people have visited. And so that's the tough part. Before COVID, Las Vegas had $20 billion dollars worth of development projects in the pipeline. And that was including Sphere. And uh, now post COVID, I mean, people are forecasting, you know, 18 months before conventions come back. And uh, that's really affecting Vegas. I mean, they just announced today that the Palazzo Tower um, was gonna, you know, shutter seven days a week because of low demand. So you're taking another 3000 plus room hotel um, just, just offline, you're taking it because there's no demand. So I think all things being equal, Vegas was going to, instead of the entertainment capital of the world, it was fast becoming the sports and entertainment capital of the world. And I think it will still complete 80% of the, the development and people will come back, but we'll just have to be better marketers. We'll have to be better you know, customer service people will ha will have to really continue to elevate the experience. And Vegas has to be an easy destination and a safe destination to get in and out of moving forward. Yeah, and that, you know, plays in as we sort of move to the end of this chat, um, that immersive entertainment, you know, whether it's sports, whether it's the casinos, if you can't fly in from X to stay at the hotel because of what we're going through, but yeah. we are now entering the world of immersive entertainment in every way, shape, or form. And I can place that bet with the EPL from Los Altos, California, or somebody in Macau can bet on games on December 22nd, right, when the NBA tips off. And so what better place on the face of the globe than Las Vegas, which truly is, as you said, an entertainment capital, now a sports capital, now a gaming capital, 
but you, we want people to come back in droves, but people will have to figure out innovatively how to get people there that can't get there. And we're starting to get the tools to do that. Yeah, and I think what'll happen is you'll start to see more of an omni-channel experience. So your, your brick and mortar casino and hotel that you love to stay at every 12 months is now gonna have a deeper relationship with you online through an app. Um, and so you're gonna see a more omni-channel experience. And honestly, we needed that because we got a little bit complacent in Las Vegas. We rested on our laurels and, and we weren't really doing good real-time marketing like we should have been doing. Um, but, you know, Las Vegas has a lot of great, um, you know, attributes to it. It's, it's always going to be a value-based destination. It's always going to be low cost to get in and out of. Um, we're always going to have a lot of hotel room volume that nobody else has. And um, we're, we're going to be a canvas for people to really put on the best entertainment experiences. And that's not going to change. It's just to what degree will hybrid meetings and virtual entertainment, to what degree will that mop up the market share? Will that be 20% of your entertainment experience? Will it be 40% or will it be 5%? What, what place will virtual occupy in the, in the next five years? That's the big question for me. Yeah, and you know, I'm not all that big a better, but everybody talks about the whales, right? And, and they're flown in from all over the world, but I think I know that the guppies who are sitting by the nickel slots, they spend billions, right? Nickels add up. And so in a market where the guppies and the whales can smile at each other and not eat each other, it benefits your market, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, we're still, I mean, look, very few people are building more gaming tables. We, we were investing in, in more convention space, uh, in more arenas. Um, but, you know, we may pivot now. We may pivot to this new normal. The problem with Vegas is generally it takes a year to design something, it takes two years to build something. So you're three to four years uh, of research and development on, on a concept that all of a sudden may be outmoded by COVID or, or you know, uh, become obsolete because of COVID. So I feel bad for the people with shovels in the ground now that it's really hard to, to pivot their project. But, you know, look, Vegas is full of risk takers. It's full of entrepreneurs. It's full of people that, you know, are, are gonna adapt to this situation. Um, for our sake, because we're such a one industry town, we haven't done the economic diversification of other cities. Um, I really hope that we're able to see the large volumes of people because Vegas, you know, is, is basically fun at scale. And that's what Vegas stock and trade is. And if we're not able to do it at scale, we have such high operating costs. It's very hard to keep these casinos open. Thank you. Got one more card to play before we're done. So play it. So I, I love the rapid fire questions. We'll give you three of them real quick. Sure. Uh, you know, as you think about all the different places on the strip, I've got a couple in mind in terms of, um, you know, you, you mentioned uh, the Phoenician, the Bellagio, there are all these famous spots, but what's mm -hmm. the most underrated spot to visit? Underrated um, in terms of fun or in terms of, uh, you know, Shows, entertainment, whatever it might be. 
sports? Huh. Um, I've been a big fan recent years of the Cosmopolitan. Um, you know, it was always a scrappy boutique hotel, um, but you always get a great mix of people there. You get trendy, you know, Manhattanites, and then you get just wacky people. But it, it, it all kind of – the chandelier bar at Cosmopolitan is always great for people watching. Even if you're not into betting, if you're not into gambling, just people watching, it's, it's just a fun vibe. I don't know, Jake. I've seen their ads, and it looks pretty – you know, it looks pretty classy. Are you ready for that? <laughs> I'm just asking. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, Nami, next sport that's going to come to Vegas. Ooh, the next sport. Um, I've heard NBA. I've heard MLB. You've, you've heard a lot of things. Um, you know, uh, I am just worried about our 2 million people uh, digesting the current sports teams. Um, and I'm not really thinking about it, but I think, you know, NBA would be you know, the, the most logical fit. I think we have a lot of passionate basketball fans here, but, uh, but I really, actually, I want to pump the brakes a little, honestly, because I think the Raiders need some time to, to shine. Most definitely. They've got a shiny stadium and, and they need to let people in at some point in the next season. So last question for you, as you think about just Vegas, right? The fans there, the local, the local Las Vegas population, right? Obviously you have millions of people that normally would come in from a tourism standpoint, but yeah. what's something that just those who are listening don't know about Vegas from a local perspective? Well, you know, what, what they don't know is kind of what I, uh, I do in grain in the golden Knights, you know, when they hired me, I was the only local exec that they hired. And, um, you know, people don't realize that, you know, it's a great place to live. And that, that as much as, as transient as people think Las Vegas is, you know, there's a lot of proud people who have are transplanted um, from somewhere else. But like me, I'm going on 18 years here. Um, you know, it, it, it you adopt that personality. So there's a lot of community uh, support of one another. There's a lot of charitable people here. Um, we help one another in times of need. We come together. Um, it's, it's a small but vibrant community, and uh, we're, we're, we have a lot of pride, civic pride. So that's why I knew the Golden Knights, a homegrown team, was going to be really successful. Um, even though we had people from Chicago, people from Boston, people from New York who still had original teams. Um, you know, we have a civic pride. It's a great place to live. It's a high quality of life. There's not a casino around every corner that's trying to take your dollar. Um, it's where my wife and I have, have raised a family and, uh, you know, we love it and I live in the suburbs. And, uh, so I think when people move here, they realize that, wow, this is, this is a, a high quality of life, um, and, and a really good lifestyle for my, my wife, my family. And so I think it's, it's very underrated in terms of the quality of life in Las Vegas. All right. I lied. I got one more question, uh, because you helped launch the Vegas night, Golden Knights brand. What's something that the, the typical fan or, or the listener doesn't know about what went into the logo, the brand, the launch, et cetera? Well, uh, what I know is uh, we announced that we were going to unveil the brand the same week of the election um, in November uh, of 16. And uh, we had, we really didn't do 
the things we needed to do in terms of getting the word out, but we did like, the last two and a half weeks, we, we really worked 18 hour days. We got the word out. We said, everybody come outside of T-Mobile arena at this time on a Tuesday, we're going to unveil this name and logo. And Gary Bettman said it's the most people he had ever seen just to unveil a name and a logo. Uh, and we had some early merchandise from Adidas that night. And uh, basically, we we had 7,000 people uh, just attend a name unveil. And uh, then we sold, you know, close to six figures worth of merchandise of T-shirts and caps for the Golden Knights on that night amid the election week, which everybody was preoccupied with. And so it was a pretty fantastic unveil given the situation and all the work we had to do in the weeks leading up to it. Um, and at the end of the day, we really didn't know how the city was going to respond because we never had a pro team before. And, uh, and they responded amazingly well, and they've been a, a rabid fan base ever since. And, and when we unveiled the logo, we got a lot of haters, you know, that hated the design, hated the name, but honestly, three years later, it, there are so many passionate fans. You can't go to Costco without seeing every fourth person has something of the Golden Knights on. Yeah. And, well, and, Mr. And, Foley, right? Mr. Foley has done an incredible job. And, you know, knowing Carrie and, and uh, Brian, based upon the great work you did, uh, my friend Todd Lightwicky, right? He's like going nice. a lot about the Kraken, and I go like, yeah. you know, we'll see, we'll yep. see how you do. They're they're off to a great start without even playing. But, yeah, yeah, and they got they got Johnny Greco doing their game presentation, so you know they're going to have some fun with the game presentation. Well, congratulations for the great work that you've done. Thank you for being with us. And Jake, we need to schedule chapter two in the new year. Yeah. Absolutely. Nami, thank you so much for participating in our in our podcast, episode 225. Really appreciate it. And uh, thanks for diving in on the world of ultimately sports and entertainment. Appreciate it. Thanks, Nami. Th Be safe. Thank you. Thanks, gentlemen. I appreciate it.